0: We went and saw Black Panther yesterday, and that was super cool. And I am I am continuing to be very excited about all the superhero movies because I'm a, a big comic nerd and because I just I enjoy them. Most of them have been very good, some of them have been duds. If you saw the travesty that was Batman versus Superman, I don't have words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you can't have those two hours and 70 minutes of your life back or whatever it was. And, and, and you know, from the outset, it was just a flawed concept. You got Superman who is faster than the speeding bullet. He's so strong, nobody's stronger. He can knock over buildings, he's got heat vision, he's got cold wind, he's got X-ray, he's, he's got everything, he can fly. And then you got Batman, who is rich and grumpy. Those are his superpowers. It was just, there was not going to be, and of course what they had to do was bring kryptonite into the mix. Otherwise it would have been too boring for words. And, and you need a kryptonite when you've got a Superman, or it's just not interesting. There has to be a weakness there, some vulnerability, and that's to make it somehow true to life. Yeah, the guy's flying around, yeah, he's from outer space, it's not realistic, but to make it feel like life like in any way, there has to be a weakness we look at anybody we hold up on a pedestal. Don't hold them up too high because there's a weakness. Even in the scriptures. right? We, we, we looked at uh, the, the weakness of Samson. There's a new movie out, Samson, as kind of a superhero. I'm hoping to see it. Samson's one weakness, his kryptonite, was his long hair that could be cut, and women, and his absolute lack of judgment. Okay, Samson's a bad example. He had lots of them. Uh, David, his kryptonite was pride. Right? It would knock him right down, take him out of the fight, even though he was the man after God's own heart. Or look at Peter. His kryptonite, his weakness was machismo. Right? His idea that he was self-sufficient. And the enemy used that to lay him low and almost to defeat him, but not quite because Jesus reinstated him. And when Jesus' enemies got together, just right before this passage begins, they said to each other, Essentially, what is Jesus' kryptonite? What's his weakness? What's he, yes, he's, he's a formidable opponent, but everyone has a weakness. And like true mustache-twirling villains in a corny movie, they decided his weakness is his compassion. His weakness is that he's teaching forgiveness and love, and, and a new start, and new life, and they decided to try and use that against him. It's it's really quite a desperate ploy, but you see what drove them to it. If you look right before this, what happens, there, there are officers, in verse 32, sent to arrest Jesus, temple guards. They say, okay, he's in Jerusalem, he's on our turf, now is the time to deal with the Jesus problem. You guys go... Listen to him while he teaches in the temple courts. As soon as he says something arrestable, which he does every 10 minutes, you arrest him. Do it publicly. People will know we're still in charge. So the temple guards went, and they waited in the background. They waited and waited and listened. They were listening for something that would prompt them. And then they kind of forgot why they were there, because the more they listened, the more they marveled at what Jesus was teaching. And when Jesus finally wrapped things up, They said, wow, i got a lot to think about. And they decided to head on back. And and the, the leaders said to them, well, where's Jesus? You didn't arrest him? And they said, wow, no one teaches as this man. No one teaches like this man. Why did you not bring him? No one has ever spoke like this. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Then nicodemus who had gone to him before remember that nicodemus said to them does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does they replied are you from galilee too search and see that no prophet arises from galilee so now they've figured out he is winning he we send guys after him to arrest him he flips their hearts And now they're marveling at his teaching. Even in our inner circle, the upper echelon, Nicodemus is speaking up for him. He was following Jesus, and he was following him in secret. And then he starts to to come out with these things that, that we have to give him a hearing. And he knows, he thinks anyway, if they hear him, their hearts will be turned as well. And so now they're not sending anybody else after him. They've tried to lay some traps They've had people go and ask him trick questions to try and catch him in his words and make him incriminate himself, asking questions about paying taxes, questions, the Sadducees asked him questions about the resurrection. None of it worked. He always got the upper hand. And so now they say the stakes have been too low. We've got his kryptonite, his compassion. We're going to raise the stakes and we're going to, it's not going to be a hypothetical question, but a real case. And they drag before him a woman who, incidentally, was made in the image of God. Throw her on the ground before him and begin this sick game. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite commentators on Scripture, used to be the the pastor of 10th Presbyterian before he died, Uh, he wrote, wrote this about this passage. This story shows how justice and mercy can be harmonized while at the same time neither encouraging sin nor condemning the sinner. In this respect... It is a central, even a pivotal point in John's gospel. A central, even a pivotal point. And yet, when Aaron read the passage and you read along, you may have noticed that there's a note in most. If you have the King James, you probably don't have a note. But if you have a newer translation, the ESV, Aaron came over to me. She thought I was trying to make her look stupid. She said, this isn't in my Bible is there's these brackets. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And then in the ESV, there's double brackets around the text itself. I don't know. There's some kind of brackets and and a footnote in the New International Version saying that the earliest uh, manuscripts, many of them don't contain this text. So it's pivotal, but is it really part of the Bible? That's often the question that is raised when we come to a passage like this. Many preachers just... They don't want to deal with it. They don't ever preach on these things, the ending of Mark, this, and a couple other passages of questionable veracity. This is too good to leave aside. And so let's, let's have a quick look at it and ask the, the questions. Yes, the brackets are there, and, and there should be a note, because many of the oldest manuscripts don't have this passage, and yet many of them have a big blank spot where it would be. As if to say we know that there's something missing from the narrative right here. And we, or maybe they are aware of this particular controversy of, of this uh, passage and where it goes because there are other old, old manuscripts that have this passage in other places. Uh, the very end of John, it sometimes shows up. Uh, in Luke, you sometimes find it after chapter 21. And so it does show up in some ancient... I mean, there, there are reasons that you might dismiss it, and yet there are probably more reasons, certainly, in my opinion, more reasons why we would accept it. The story itself goes back to at least the 3rd century. That's the 200s A.D. And Papias, who was born in the year 60... Not 160, not 260, 60 alludes to this very story. And if you remove it, it changes John from being this guy who's always got a very smooth, very well-segued, transitioned narrative to a kind of ka-chung change in setting where you don't know where Jesus is or who he's talking to, and it makes it a much different kind of book, and it changes his pattern, because John's whole pattern has been story that illustrates something, And then Jesus teaching about that thing. Story that illustrates something, and then Jesus teaching. And if you take this out, you miss that pattern. All of a sudden, you've lost your balance. And and so we have to ask the question, and this is the main question that textual critics ask about this Is there a reason why you'd take it out if it's original? And is there a reason why they would insert it if it's not original? Well, most of the church fathers who who argued against this story argued against it because it sort of made it seem like Jesus was approving of adultery. Which it, it doesn't, but they were afraid that that would be the impression. So we see why you would remove it. I have no idea why it would be inserted, much less inserted here. So it's very easy to explain, I think, what happened with this story. And I do believe it is original. If I was in charge of the ESV, which... For the record, I'm not. I'd leave that note, but I'd put it at the bottom as a little footnote, and I'd take those brackets right on out. And, of course, there's nothing in this passage that is not in perfect harmony with the other doctrine in the New Testament and all the other teachings of the Lord Jesus. So the trap itself, it's a a fairly smart move on their part. Jesus' opponents were not idiots. They bring him a woman who has been caught in adultery, and they remind him of the law of Moses, which says that adultery is punishable by death. And then they ask, what should we do? And just like with the other attempts to trap Jesus, they think there's no safe answer. Whatever he says, he loses. He always turns it on them, but they keep trying because they're adorably evil, I guess. And and so the idea is if he says... Well, yeah, put her to death. That's what the law says. Remember, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If he says, okay, let's go with the law, there's a couple problems. One, it looks like he is flip-flopping now, right? He had been teaching, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And they can say, oh, what he didn't tell you is he's going to put you to death. And remember the reason they brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate. The Jews were not allowed to execute the death penalty. Only Rome could do that. So if Jesus said, yes, stone her to death, Well, now they can go to to Pilate and say he is taking the authority of Rome in his own hands and they've got ammunition against him. At the same time, if he goes the other way and says, no, 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 I forgive sins. Don't worry about this. Then they've got him on religious crimes, crimes against the Torah, crimes against that thing which identifies them and, and defines them most as a people. I can only imagine the brainstorming session that led to this little scenario, and how pleased they must have been with themselves for finding Jesus' ultimate kryptonite. It is a brilliant plan and exceedingly heartless. Jesus had taught that if we are going to help our brother remove the speck, the sin from his eye, that we should first remove the plank, and this is very well illustrated here. Yes, they have found a woman caught in sin, and yet their sin is so much more grievous. Clearly, Jesus looks at the situation and he thinks, this woman is already repenting. This woman is already acknowledging her sin. You guys, you guys are the problem. And, and he sees right through their ploy. And, and of course, he has the advantage of being divine, but you and I can see through it too. Because they had caught her. They had witnesses, that means. Right? This, is not, this is not questionable. They are not doing what they would normally do if someone suspected adultery. No, no, no. This is, they know. It happened. Which means, according to the law, two or three witnesses. Which means not that you saw her and a gentleman coming out of a room together and thought, that's suspicious. No, that doesn't do. Not that, that you even saw them lying in the same bed together. You'd have to actually see the thing happen. Two people had to see it at the same time. So they're walking along together, and then, I don't know, whether somehow see this, and it becomes quite obvious this is a setup. It's a setup because where's the man? The law says both of them need to be brought before the elders. And the, the punishment for both is the same thing. Where's the man? Probably in this group bringing her. Probably one of, Because if it's a sting operation, who better than one of their own? And they can grant him clemency. Don't worry, this is all undercover in the name of taking Jesus out of the equation. So at best, their so-called justice favors some and throws others under the bus. Perhaps the first thing we learn from this passage or the first thing it causes us to reflect on is, do we ever fall into that kind of a pattern? I, when I was in college, uh, a friend of mine... Uh, was also at a Christian college, and she got pregnant. And she sent out an email. New, email was new. Remember, it was one of the first ones I got on our VAX system. Said, I'm pregnant. I admit that, that what I did was sinful, and they've asked me to withdraw from school, and I'm going to. Here's the odd thing. The guy who was the father, I mean, he was technically the father. He never had anything to do with the raising of the child. He graduated with me. Nobody did anything with him. The same sort of scenario happens today, 2,000 years later. And Jesus has the same objection because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, why this injustice? Well, remember what we talked about last week when we were looking at the woman on the well, that that there was actually a debate going on about whether women had souls. There was a very great uh, inequality between men and women, and it's manifesting itself here as well. Jesus has very little patience for that. By the way, if you are interested in this sort of thing, after Easter, I will be beginning a Sunday school class on women in the early church and uh, women in the scriptures and women in ministry. Uh, that's, That's for free. That's just a little plug. But what follows is one of my favorite Jesus moments. His response to this, it's just so wonderful, it's so brilliant, and it's even almost playful in the midst of this horribly high-stakes, uh, awful situation that they've tried to concoct for him. Jesus will not be drawn into their trap. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. No, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, recognize Jesus was already sitting because he was teaching. They, they didn't stand at a pulpit. They sat down when it was time to teach. And that was the position of authority. Um, we, we couldn't do that. I'm too antsy. But, but Jesus could. He was sitting. He was te- So he hunches down. And the word is a very visual word in the Greek. And just starts writing in the dirt With his finger in the dust in the temple courts now here's a funny thing i always name the sound files when i upload my my sermons and as we've been going through john i found myself with a file called water wine one called where wind where does the wind go one called woman well and i'm going to call this one wrote what that's the question right Many people think that's the point of this passage. We have to figure out that missing information that you know, that comes at the very end of the story that makes it all make sense. What did he write? And I've read so many theories about what he wrote and why and how that is what caused these people to walk away from their trap. Augustine suggested that this shows the difference between the law and the gospel. The law was chiseled into rock Jesus bends down and begins writing in dust. Man made out of dust, therefore writing in man. The Gospel written on the heart of man. Classic Augustine. I can sort of see it, but it seems a bit of a stretch. Others have suggested maybe he was writing out the sins of the people around him. Possible, but if that were the case, I think John would tell us if that were the information we needed. Or writing out the Ten Commandments. Others have suggested... And this maybe has a little more to it, that Jesus was just writing the names of those who had come to accuse the woman. Remembering Jeremiah 17, 13, and you might jot that in the margin of your Bible here. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. We kind of tie together the last pericope and this one. Others have suggested what Jesus is doing is showing how doubtful this whole thing is and and how it's just such a a concoction of their wicked minds as a kind of allusion back to the bitter water. You remember the bitter water in the Old Testament law? If not, listen up, because it's fascinating. And it's one of these things that makes you stop and say, I really believe this book, right? It's one of these things that, that makes you have to acknowledge there was something supernatural going on in that temple. It wasn't all just pictures for our benefit, but there was something supernatural going on because if there weren't two eyewitnesses, and there usually weren't for obvious reasons, if someone suspected his wife of being an adulteress, they would bring her to the priest. And the priest would then stoop down and gather dust from the floor of the sanctuary pour it into some water. They called that the bitter water. There's, it's all laid out in uh, Numbers, if you want to read it. Um, and and he, he would kind of, uh, number, Numbers 5, he would kind of mix it up, and, and he had, would say this big, long thing about drinking the bitter water. And if she was guilty, she would then uh, begin to kind of waste away in her lower body, and her, her abdomen would swell, and at that time, both she and the man would be put to death. Otherwise, nothing would happen to her. But another part of this was that the priest would write down the charge and then blot it out with the bitter water because it was questionable. And so many people have said, well, maybe what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of stooping down and they think he's going to gather the dust. They think he's going to usurp this role of the priest and start doing this. And instead, he's just like, no, 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 no. Maybe he writes the charge against her in the dust, showing how feeble it is what these people are doing. Here's the point, though. The rabbinical rule was, if you commit adultery yourselves, we won't even do the bitter water thing with the woman. If you are an adulterous man and you're all over the place stepping out on your wife and you come and say, I suspect the priest will just laugh you right out of the temple and perhaps that was what Jesus was doing. I don't think so, but it's been a good case has been made for it. I think the answer comes by just taking away this idea that there must be some missing detail that we don't quite have. Some manuscripts contain the words feigning as though he did not hear them. He bent down like he was not even listening. They came to him, we've got this big thing ready. Okay, I'll say this, then you say this, then we throw the woman to the ground, then we step back dramatically, and they came and they did this whole thing, and Jesus just... Huh? And it doesn't matter. what. In fact, the word katagrafo doesn't necessarily mean to write. It can mean to draw. He might have been drawing pictures of smiley faces in the dust. We don't know. He's preoccupied with something else, as if he's so bored with their repeated attempts to trap him and he's, it's, it's, this is essentially the equivalent of in the first century of pulling out your phone, right? Which is super rude. Seinfeld had that great bit about how when people are talking to him and they... Uh-huh, he would just stop talking and take out a magazine and start reading it because that's so... But Jesus does essentially this. He, he leans over and he just starts doodling. On the ground, like somebody might trace the wallpaper with their finger. I'm not even paying attention. I have no interest in your little game, your little trap for me. I am bored by it. Calvin says, John Calvin says, by this attitude he intended to show that he despised them. You're, you're, You're not really worth my time. I've been trying to teach, and here you are trying to use this woman's life as a ploy for your political ends to get me out of the picture. And finally, we're told he straightens back up after they kept on accusing. How awkward is this? Well, what do you say? <laughs> you got to assume another couple minutes went by of them continual uh, accusing. She did this. No, you have, to, you have to give us an answer. She did it. Hey, hey, stop writing in the dirt. Hey, this is serious. This, look, you got to, we're, we're coming to you. And finally, he straightens back up in his seat. And says, whoever here is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. He's basically quoting the law right back at them. Deuteronomy 17, 7. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to be put to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. You know, I, I used to be a wrestler. That's a, that's a new thing for some of you to know. There are pictures out there of me in the, like, singlet trying to look mean, um, But something I remember from my wrestling days, a takedown is one point. A reversal is two points. Jesus, whenever they come at him, they're looking to score a point, and he always scores two. Because he always reverses it, and he does it without even trying. As soon as he says these words, what does he do? Back to doodling in the dust. (laughs) Thanks for playing You lose and it's always a reversal right when they come to him. Well, tell us this blah 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 Okay, I'll answer your question if you answer mine was John the Baptist baptism from heaven or from from man Just simple question. They were stuck. They thought they had him trapped. He had them trapped Well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Have a look at that coin once whose picture is on this? Oh, Caesar's okay. Well give it a Caesar then He traps them. Every It's a reversal because Jesus came not to have these debates. You can see how disinterested in it he is, but he has the answers. He has the answers that people are seeking, and he has far more important answers than the answers to these traps they try to send him. And something about his words or even his very presence disarmed all of these people just as he had disarmed those two temple guards who came to arrest him. And one by one, beginning with the oldest, down to the last, they walked away. While, the whole time, Jesus continues doodling in the dust. I assume the elders were the wisest, they had the most sins to consider because they'd been alive the longest, recognized they were trapped, and began to walk away. And at some point, Jesus looks up from his artwork or what he's writing on the ground, whatever he's preoccupied himself with, and finds that he is alone. None of them are there, just he and the woman. He's alone, but he's not alone. Those who he's teaching are still there. And so here he is in front of an audience, and they thought we'll, we'll ambush him while he's teaching, because then he'll be humiliated. And everyone will see he doesn't that. Instead, there's this wonderful picture of what Jesus came to do to seek and save the lost. It's an object lesson for them. And now Jesus turns to her and says, Where did they go? Does no one condemn you? With the witnesses in the wind, the law, no witnesses wind. Maybe that's the one. MP3. With the witnesses in the wind, the law no longer demands or even permits her to be put to death. Now he looks at her, and here she is, no longer accused. Does no one condemn you? No one. And he says to her, woman, does no one condemn you? Remember that one? Woman from uh, the wedding in Cana? And we said, this is not disrespectful. It is a term of great respect. Probably it should be translated, dear woman. Because Jesus looks at her and doesn't see trash that's sinned and now needs to be punished. He sees a precious soul, a dear woman. This is this is what no one could get, and it's it's so strange that even though they had listened to John the Baptist preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, they'd listened to Jesus teaching, they'd sent spies, they knew what he taught, they couldn't grasp it. John three sixteen we looked at a few weeks ago, John three seventeen is what comes to mind right now, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him push that down into one person, throw her at Jesus' feet, and demand that he condemn her, he's not going to do it. And yet, today, there are churches, there are preachers, names come to mind, but I won't say them here, far more interested in condemning those people, whoever those people are in a given setting, far more interested in that than in offering forgiveness than in marveling at what Jesus has done for all of us in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His resurrection. This is what Jesus wants everyone to know about His ministry at this moment. I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to save. I have come to seek and save the lost. This this passage, though, is often misused, taken right out of its context, used kind of like how people misuse judge not lest ye be judged. If it, that's the one verse every non-Christian knows, right? And if you say anything that is making a value judgment, uh, judge not, that's not what Jesus taught. In fact, there's a word for making a value judgment, saying what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's wicked. That's the word crino. Jesus says judge righteously using that word. Then there's the word katakrino, which basically you take the word down and stick it on the... judge down, condemn, to hell with you, essentially, quite literally judging one to hell that's what he says not to do or, or you will be judged and so many people will take that out of context many who take this in the same way out of context and say well whoever's not sin cast the first stone meaning unless you're perfect you can't declare something right or wrong you can't make any kind of judgment you can't judge righteously like jesus taught and that that would be cheap grace That would be everyone just sin, sin, sin. Go on sinning that grace may increase. To that, the Apostle Paul says, may it never be. It's not cheap grace. It's free salvation, but it ain't cheap. It was bought at the price of Jesus' blood. And when he looked at that woman and saw her sin, he knew, I'm going to suffer and die for that sin. That's why he could say, I do not condemn you, Either. I do not condemn you either. And he didn't stop there. Go and sin no more. And if you want to find that somewhere else that doesn't have a footnote, just look to the, the story of the man healed at the sheep gate. We looked at that last, last year, last summer. And, and when, when uh, he bumped into him later, he said, Oh, you seem to be well. Sin no more, that nothing worse will happen to you. Go and sin no more. This is part of the gospel message. You are dead in your sins. Jesus came and bought your salvation at the cost of his death, his blood, his suffering. Now go and sin no more. And when we do go and inevitably sin, there is more forgiveness. But if we walk in darkness, we haven't seen the light. It's just it's the same John who writes about that in 1 John. That if we walk in sin, and that is our lifestyle, that is what we're content with, we've not been saved. We've heard these words and ignored them. I think there's one more thing we want to look at in this text. And that is the way that this group, and it's crazy to me how wicked people can be in big groups, isn't it? You get that big group on the internet, it can get even wickeder, by the way. But, but it's crazy to me how these men, these righteous men with their robes and their decorations could use this woman. This young woman. Why do you say she's young? Because they know their law, and the law only says a betrothed woman should be stoned if she commits adultery. And so, almost certainly, it would be very rare to be betrothed, to be engaged, uh, older than a teenager, probably a young teenager. That, that's what Mary was worried about, and what Joseph spared her by not making an accusation against her. And so they're willing to use this young woman as a tool, as a pawn. They're willing to bring her out, not go to Jesus in private even but in front of everybody in the temple to humiliate her publicly. This, and, and this does. This happens in the temple area. Not only is she a tool for them to use in their mind, the temple is the playground for their game. And they're playing games. Jesus calls them out on that, by the way. You're like little kids playing funeral. And you say, why won't you mourn when we play a dirge? Why won't you dance when we play a jig? I won't play your games, essentially. They are using the, the holy temple that they supposedly love as the board for their game. They're using the, the law of God as a pawn as well. Or maybe they're using it as a weapon. Either way, they are, they're taking something holy and it's being thrown to the dogs in the way they're using it. They're not after justice at all. In fact, injustice is just another tool for them under the name... Of justice in the church we gotta we gotta avoid this when there, when precious souls are involved in something going ooh there's a chance for me to further my argument my position 17 kids shot and killed ooh let me get on Twitter or let me start having another angry argument about my point of view whatever it is whichever side whatever the case if we see an opportunity in that how different is that the culture wars generally make us more like the scribes and the pharisees than they make us like Jesus or even this woman we we have to if we see an opportunity for anything it's got to be an opportunity to bring the gospel to bear and say Jesus died for all these people Jesus died for you yes it's hard to find meaning in a time like this but look to Christ for it and this is what happens what they meant for evil God uses for good These guys thought that they were were so smart, they were so sharp. What greater favor could they have possibly done this woman than to bring her guilty before this judge who accepts her repentance, forgives her sins, saves her from death, and sends her away in newness of life. You're welcome. Even when they killed Jesus, the ultimate evil, God used it for the ultimate good. But let's not be the people who God takes what we intend for evil and uses it for good. Let's be the people where God takes what we intend for His glory and like the loaves and fish, multiplies it to bring Him even greater and greater glory. We want to be more like this woman caught in adultery who admits her sin and receives life and salvation than like those in the crowd who looked outwardly righteous. Because their sins... You see, her sins are out in the open now. She's free as they skulk away one at a time, knowing about the sin in their hearts, theirs is still locked up. It's still dragging them down. They still stand condemned already in the words of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. We want to be lowly of heart, like Christ, meek, We want to be spiritually poor, recognizing that if we will have anything, it comes from Christ. Jesus looks at this woman and those around her, and he sees a couple things that no one else sees. First, he sees the sin. He sees it all. Remember, we looked at that passage from John 2. He knew men's hearts. He didn't need anyone to vouch for him. He knew men. He knew what was in men. And and that's uh, gender inclusive, men and women. He knew. So he looks at her. He knows her sin. And then he looks at them and he knows their sin as well. He, he doesn't fall into either of these ditches that, that are on both sides of the road as we as Christians in the 21st century try and traverse the faith in a world that's more and more hostile to it. On one side is naivete. Everybody's basically good. Hey, Jesus is happy. God is love. Don't worry about what anyone does, how they live, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. God's not interested in all that. On the other side is this spiritual cynicism and and kind of a self-righteousness. Jesus doesn't even fall into that, even though he himself is the only truly righteous one who ever lived. But he doesn't fall into it. Well, I look at them and just see, oh, good grief. I, I feel spiritually nauseated. No, he looks at them and he sees their sinfulness, but also the other thing he sees is the value of all people. Everyone precious in his sight. And so he sees them all. They're all sheep without a shepherd. Even the guys who are supposed to be the shepherds. Sheep without a shepherd. This is a recurring theme in Jesus' teaching. Remember he said, you have heard it said, if you, if you uh, utter the word raka, which means empty head or empty one, that you are answerable to the Sanhedrin. But I say, if you look and say moros, uh, which is basically moron in Greek, you are still in the dangers of hellfire. Why He's saying, look, you, you think these big outward sins are a big deal, but the little inside secret sins are not. I'm telling you, if you devalue your fellow human made in the image of God, it's tantamount to murder. That when you see someone and your first thought is, "Uh, oh, I know what's up with them, and you, in your mind, take them down to less valuable than you, You have committed a grave sin. Jesus shows us the value of everyone. And that's why we see him usually siding with the poor and disenfranchised, because they don't recognize that they have value. Yes, he shows them their sin, but he shows them that they are precious in the sight of the Father. At the same time, he says in this passage, essentially, don't you dare use people as pawns people as pawns to bring about whatever end you're looking for, whether it's religious or political or personal gain or what. He does not deny the shame of this woman's sin, but he refuses to let shame have the last word and define her because she looks to him for salvation in this moment. During this time of Lent, we have a season of repentance, a great opportunity. And you know, There are many people who've walked away from their faith because the church they were raised in or the church they found themselves in was like this. Go out and sin. Sin it up. Have fun. Mardi Gras, right before Lent begins. Yeah, go nuts. Just don't get on one of those videos, right? Then come back. Jump through this hoop, this hoop, and this hoop. Slate clean. Head back out to sin some more. People know that's a racket. Oh, by the way, give us 10%, you know, just to... Take a little off the top here. No, they know that's a racket. People don't have any need for that. No, what we need is neither do I condemn you. You are saved. You are new. Now go and sin no more. And when you do sin, you can come back with broken heart. You can come back to the foot of the cross knowing that you have failed and I will accept you again. He is faithful and just, according to this same John, Faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Go and sin no more. We were slaves to sin and now our sin is out in the open and our salvation is out in the open. Just like this woman, it was public. And we say we're sinners saved by grace. We are free. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. During this Lent, let me tell you, you can be free from that sin. You know that one? You know that one. The one that you can't be free from? The one that keeps dragging you down? The one that, you, uh, I guess that's just who I am. I'm always going to be someone who judges people in my mind and and, is, and has got a just a running commentary about what's wrong with that. That's who I am. No, you can walk away from this sin. You can go and sin no more. You have freedom in Christ. Don't try and do it by your own power. Throw yourself at the mercy of the same Jesus who said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let us go into this Lent, leaving this place, going out to the mission field of the world, not seeing people as tools for something to be advanced, not seeing God's Word as a weapon to be used against people, but looking at the world which is caught in sin and reaching out as the merciful hands of Jesus offering forgiveness in His name. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this story and how it came to us in an odd way that gets our attention and makes us think hard about what it contains. Lord, we thank You that when that woman was brought before Your Son, Jesus, You did not condemn her, but You offered her forgiveness of sins and offered her a chance to go and sin no more. Lord, each of us, if we are born again, have been in that very same position where the enemy has brought us before you and said, you must condemn Zach. You must condemn Noel. You must condemn Lisa. They have sinned. And he said, I condemn you not. You're paid for in the blood of Jesus. Go and sin no more. Lord, may we leave this place feeling lighter, knowing we have been bought with a price, knowing we can go, and sin no more. Amen.